0: The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. row Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post.
1: How are you? Hey there. It's Simon The Post. Post. Hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 3rd Today, the GOP's about face on climate change, a murder mystery 30 years in the making, and a presidential memoir that never was. For the next couple of weeks, delegations from around the world will be meeting in Poland to talk about climate change. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale climate change." Naturalist Sir David Attenborough kicked off the proceedings. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. But here in the U.S., President Trump and the Republican Party are sticking to their skepticism about climate science. Last week, Trump dismissed this landmark climate report that was put out by his own government. He insisted that he's not a believer in man-made climate change, and Republicans have been falling in line. But it wasn't always like this. There's this TV ad from a decade ago, produced by a nonprofit founded by Al Gore.
3: Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And
0: I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker.
1: You can hear how climate change policy used to be a somewhat bipartisan thing.
3: We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt?
2: No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change.
3: We need cleaner forms of energy, and we need them fast.
0: It's such a difference from now. Matt Vizer is a national political reporter for The Post. First of all, to have a Republican Democrat agreeing you know, and, and touting an agreement on a controversial subject It's an indication to me, I think, of how far the Republican Party has shifted.
1: Matt has been reporting on the ways that Republican lawmakers have backpedaled.
0: I mean, the Republican Party has never been a party that wholly has embraced climate change. But there did seem to be more movement toward accepting that the world was changing, that climate was changing, with the major disagreements being over what should be done about it. George W. Bush, for example, had had come to a conclusion that man-made climate change was occurring.
2: The issue of climate change respects no border. Its effects cannot be reined in by an army nor advanced by any ideology. Climate change, with its potential to impact every corner of the world, is an issue that must be addressed by the world.
1: So where are we at now in terms of the Republican Party's stance on the basic facts of climate change and what to do
0: about it? So there's a huge questioning uh, among the Republican Party about even the science of it. There's different hedges that Republicans will give, such as I'm not a scientist, but, you know, is a frequent one. They will, in some cases, concede that the seas are rising and that the waters are getting warmer but you know, generally, there's uh, questioning still of the science behind it that humans are not contributing to that, um, and that it's just a cyclical change. So it's almost going back, but before Newt Gingrich and and that comment to. Uh, a, a debate over the science, whereas scientists have only gotten more and more confident in in their their conclusions about climate change.
1: Well, why are we seeing this shift from Republican politicians sort of backpedaling away from acknowledging the science behind climate change?
0: I, I think part of it is. President Trump and and his impact on the party. And he has a long history of calling climate change a hoax. Uh, we saw him uh, completely disavow the findings of his own administration on the climate assessment uh, report just two weeks ago. And I think he has such a control over the Republican Party that nobody's willing to take him on. Uh, in a way that, frankly, Republicans will take him on 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 you know foreign policy issues, on trade matters, they'll speak out against him. We saw very little of that uh, on on climate change and the conclusions of that. So I think I think part of it is just the President Trump's. This is his Republican Party.
1: But you've reported that that more than a majority, maybe two thirds of Republican voters actually believe in climate change, at least to some extent. So why are our lawmakers kind of? willing to go out on a limb to counter the beliefs of the majority of their voters uh, to just to be in, a, in alignment with President Trump. I,
0: I think that's, you know, President Trump often doesn't necessarily follow the matters of public opinion, and he takes his party uh, in, in that direction. And I think that's the real worry among some Republicans that President Trump is so transforming the party and taking it away from the broader American electorate and where it is heading. The polling is pretty striking where just in the last three years, there's been a, about 15 point difference in Republican voters now believing in, in climate change. Um, and among independents and Democrats, the numbers are even even greater Uh, So I think it's making uh, it harder for Republicans to win a broader electorate as long as they hold these positions.
1: So given President Trump's stance on climate change and and the Republican side of Congress, is there anything that can happen to sort of snap the U.S. back to a course of, of taking more dramatic action to try to combat the effects of climate change?
0: I mean, I, I think that that is the big open question. And political leadership, it doesn't seem like, is coming at the moment. But scientifically, there are dire warnings that the time is short to try and figure some of this out. You know, there's reports of Miami being underwater by the year 2100. And on the political horizon, I, I think it's it's more having constituents make this a priority 2020 this could be a priority i think among democrats to to push it to a presidential level debate stage
1: where it would be one of the key issues that people are voting on
0: yeah and and frankly it hasn't been and republicans have made that point that this is not an issue that they're hearing about you know they're not being asked about it in debates they're not being pushed on it and i think 2020 you could see democrats you know, running on climate change and making it an issue on a presidential debate stage with President Trump. And if the polling is correct, then it could be a winning argument. And that, I think, could reshape things. But I think over the next two years, there's not much indication of any sort of major political momentum behind climate change legislation.
1: Thank you so much, Matt.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Matt Visor is a national political reporter for The Post. It was the fall of 2015, and I was
4: sitting at my desk. There was high energy in the newsroom because it was the presidential campaign. It was just kicking into high gear. And there were a lot of candidates and a lot
1: of us on the team trying to cover it. Mary Jordan is a national political correspondent for The Post.
4: And the phone rang. And then I heard this woman say, Have you heard anything more about the Margaret Yateman murder?
1: It doesn't ring a bell for Mary, so...
4: With the phone in the cradle of my neck, I started typing my old story to see what it was. She
1: Googles Yatman's name.
4: And then it brought it all back. And
1: she comes across a story she'd written near the very start of her career.
4: The Alexandria boyfriend of Margaret F. Yatman, the woman whose body was found in the trunk of her car June 29th, is being investigated in her death, according to a police affidavit filed in Alexandria Circuit Court.
1: It was buried on page four of the Metro section in July of 1986.
4: Back then... I was 25 years old, and in the small Washington Post bureau, I covered Alexandria, Virginia, a small town right outside Washington, D.C.
1: She covered the usual range of things, happenings in the mayor's office, the school system, and the latest from cops and courts. But this story, on July 15, 1986 was different.
4: Margaret Yateman and Arthur Kuhn met at the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They were both working for this federal law enforcement agency just a few blocks from the White House, and they started dating. She fell in love. Turned out, Kuhn was still married to a woman in New York.
1: Margaret Muffy Yatman had been having an affair with Arthur Kuhn, who's known as Artie. Yademan had been found dead in the trunk of her car in Baltimore, and that was a story.
4: But then I moved on. They asked me to cover politics, and I moved to Washington. And then all of a sudden, I found myself living in Tokyo, a foreign correspondent, then Mexico for several years, and London. And all of a sudden, it was 30 years later, and I was back in Washington. And then the call came.
1: That call from the victim's best friend told her that not only was it an unsolved murder, but that the prime suspect was married to the mob. So for the past three years, Mary has been back on the story of what happened to Margaret Gateman and why her death has remained a cold case for so long.
4: How did you find me?
3: For years, I thought Ari's last name was spelled K-U-H-N-Q. I didn't know it was C-U-N-N until I was talking to Rosemarie.
4: Linda Tagg was not only Margaret Yateman's best friend, but she was a former D.C. police officer. One of the first women, actually, on the D.C. police force. She was so precise and so confident.
3: And so I had gotten myself on Facebook, and I had a little laptop and everything, so I searched his name. And up comes a story written by you about that time.
4: And Rosemarie Brashear, the victim's sister, was so emotional. You could just feel the ache in her heart about not knowing what happened. She still kept her sister's favorite dress in her closet all these years later.
3: She was my mother. She raised me. She was my sister and my best friend. And she loved, when she loved you, she loved unconditionally.
4: Margaret Yateman had a hard life. She grew up very poor, right a few blocks from Capitol Hill. Her mother worked in a drugstore. Her father drank too much. She was a lot older than her younger brothers
3: and sisters, so she was kind of the mom. She had the biggest heart. She never thought about herself. She always thought about everyone else. What would make them happy? What do they want? What do they need?
4: Yateman was famous for her laugh. She was always in motion. She was always walking. She was going to aerobics class. She loved to
3: read. She liked to crochet.
4: She got married very young, had two children, and was divorced and kind of on her own for a long time when she met Arthur
3: Kuhn. She loved to go to school. She loved college. She had graduated from college three weeks before she was murdered.
4: Nobody besides Arthur Kuhn was ever suspected or questioned in this murder.
1: Kuhn denied to the police that he had anything to do with Aitman's death.
4: They had one burning question. Why was he never even arrested?
3: I was very surprised he was never arrested and that he went on to live his life.
4: He was an explosive expert. You know, he, he actually diffused bombs. You know, he saved lives. There was a pipe bomb attached to a politician's car in Long Island. And he was written up in the newspaper for going up to the car Diffusing it, carrying it to a field, and blowing it up. They both worked in the same office, and they both had apartments in northern Virginia. Margaret Yateman told her sister and her friends that she was in love with Artie Kuhn. They were planning to be married. So he told her that he was going to marry.
2: Yes. She had
4: broken
3: up with him, and he got her to go back with him.
4: She knew he was married, but she said that he told her that he was by himself in Washington and that his wife remained in New York because they were separated and he just didn't want to get divorced because he said his wife was dying of cancer.
1: It's not clear whether Kuhn's wife actually did have cancer, but she is alive today.
3: I mean, she always had hills and valleys, ups and downs with him. You know, it wasn't a stable thing. She was with him one week or month or two and then they'd call me up and then we'd be talking and they're breaking up. She's not seeing him. They were probably together about five or six years.
4: Margaret Yateman loved to write in her journals, and she wrote extensively about it. They were on again. They were off again. It was
3: like she loved him, absolutely. And he didn't love her. June
4: 24th, Margaret Yateman went to aerobics class after work. She was seen leaving the studio and never again. The police think she went back to her apartment near that aerobic studio and let somebody in because there was no sign of force of entry.
3: She was reported missing
4: when she didn't show up for work the next day. She was missing
3: for five days, and there was never a time in my life when I couldn't find my sister.
4: Do you remember, how did you find out that she had been killed?
3: I got a call from my niece's husband. Who called to tell me they found her car in the upper parking lot of uh, Johns Hopkins and she was in the trunk 50
4: miles away from her apartment in Baltimore, a security guard in a parking garage at Johns Hopkins University Hospital was making the rounds on the roof deck and he saw something dripping from a trunk and when he looked under it he realized it was blood he called the police when they got a crowbar to open it, they found Margaret Yateman.
1: Yateman had been shot in the back of the head with a twenty-two.
4: From the photos of that scene and in talking to the detectives who saw it, it was gruesome. It was a brutal way to die. She was wrapped in the afghan that she always kept on the back of her couch in her apartment in northern Virginia. And under her body,
1: a pair of glasses police said were identical to those Kuhn wore.
4: The police think she was killed in her apartment, and then someone wiped it clean. So there was no blood found there, no sign of a struggle. But they also said it was oddly wiped clean. And very strangely, there were pictures missing. Artie Kuhn's pictures. There was a frame hanging in the dining room that was empty, and her journals were missing. When I first wrote about it, it looked like a love triangle that had ended tragically. It was a guy who had a girlfriend and a wife, and all of a sudden the girlfriend was dead. And that's all that was known publicly at the time. But then, 30 years later, as I started obsessively going through it, and I finally got access to the file in the bowels of the headquarters of Baltimore City Police, and this cold case room looks like something from the 1950s. And I'm sitting in this chair that looked like it could collapse at any moment. They gave me this file. It was all handwritten notes by the police detectives at the time. And they listed all the reasons why Arthur Kuhn was a prime suspect. And then, I think I was two hours into the file when I finally turned another page.
1: Mary came across something that confirmed what the family had told her when they reconnected all those decades later.
4: They had a family tree that traced the biggest mob families in American history. And one family in particular was highlighted in yellow, Rusty Rustelli, who had headed the Banano crime family in the 1980s and was the head of that crime syndicate at the time of Margaret Yateman's murder. Artie Kuhn was married to a woman named Angie, and her uncle was the mobster, not just any mobster, but the head of the Banano crime family. Artie Kuhn was married to the mob boss's niece, by some accounts his favorite niece, and at the same time carrying on an affair with a woman in
1: Washington. And she ended up dead. What the family didn't know was that the police were aware of that mob connection in the earliest days of the investigation back in the 1980s. Tomorrow on Post Reports.
4: Really... The last thing to do now is just for me to go knock on the door and talk to Artie Kuhn.
1: Mary meets the prime suspect. And now, one more thing. It seems like the first thing former presidents do when they leave the White House is write their definitive memoir. But former president George H.W. Bush never did that. Our book critic Carlos Lozada wishes that he had.
2: George H.W. Bush published four books. A ghost-written campaign book while he was running for president. A book on the end of the Cold War, written with Brent Scowcroft. A diary of his time in China in the 1970s. And finally, a massive collection of his letters, published in 2013. But he never wrote a real memoir, which is a shame. These books show he had all the experiences and insights, all the revelations and blind spots that could have made for a great post-presidential memoir. But when people urged him to do it, his answer was simply, I was unpersuaded. Maybe he feared that his speaking style, which he admitted was not his strong point, would translate even worse on the page. But if he had written a memoir drawing from his diaries and letters... We might have learned more about how uncomfortable he felt with the privileges he received as a young man, how he long felt a sense of destiny about higher office, how getting shot down over the Pacific in World War II gave him a sober view of armed conflict. I still don't understand the logic of war, he wrote, why some survive and others are lost in their prime. And we might have learned how the man who was criticized for not articulating the vision thing actually did have a clear vision. It was simply about keeping America strong and in charge in key moments and crises. He saw his own leadership as an end in itself, not as a means to any ideology or set of policies. During the Gulf War, for instance, Bush considered the reaffirmation of American leadership to be just as important as removing Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. All this material is scattered throughout his books. Individually, they are snapshots of a life. Put together, they could have redefined it.
1: President Bush will lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda until his funeral service Wednesday at the National Cathedral. President Trump has declared Wednesday a national day of mourning. That's it for Post Reports. To hear new episodes every weekday, subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.